0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this morning we will be uh, focusing on thinking about verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read through verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6. In this chapter, chapter 6, we have Isaiah undone and then covered, and then sent. And uh, we are going to focus this morning on Isaiah coming undone, although he describes that in verse 5. What is it that makes him come undone? That's what we will study today in verses 1 through 4. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, Am I? Send me. This is the word of our God. Let's pray for God's help and blessing upon his word. Our God in heaven, our holy God, although we will not in this life see you in the way that Isaiah saw you, We remember the words of Peter that though we have not seen you, we love you and are filled with joy inexpressible. And our Lord Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And so we pray that uh, you would bless us as we hear from you. We can know you through what you have given to us in your word. And we can know you just as truly, and we can love you and be filled with joy. We pray that you would help us to do this. We need your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to be sent, to be given to us, to give us knowledge and understanding and insight into your word that we might sense that we are hearing from the Holy God. We pray that you would do this for us. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you may know the uh, Christian author Jerry Bridges, and he was asked in an interview once what is the greatest need of the church today? And his answer was that the church's greatest need is an ever growing awareness of the holiness of God. The church needs an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. And I think that his answer is correct. You need to know God. Everybody needs to know God. And so it matters what God you know. Do you know the real God? Well, the real God is a holy God. So if you want to know the real God, you need to know God's holiness. The church needs to understand the holiness of God so that it will worship God in the right way. You can see that many churches worship God in an irreverent way. It's because they don't understand his holiness. But you can also see in churches worship that is anemic, where people stand there, bored out of their minds as if there is anything they would rather be doing they would rather be at the dentist than having to sit there through a worship service having to sit there through songs or stand there well it's because they don't understand the holiness of God you understand that your worship will be not anemic what about sin Does the church struggle with sin? Do Christians struggle with sin? Well, here Isaiah, when he sees the holiness of God, he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. The more he understands the holiness of God, the better he has a grasp on his sin. What about grace? Shouldn't the church be all about grace? Doesn't the church need to know the grace of Jesus Christ? That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Well, if you want to know grace, Isaiah here says that his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for. Why? Because by seeing the holiness of God, he understands his sin. And so he understands grace. The church will grow in its awareness of grace as it grows in awareness of the holiness of God. Or what about obedience and sacrifice? Do you see many people calling themselves Christians? What we call nominal Christianity, just in name only? Do do you see many so-called Christians who are apathetic towards Christ? Whose lives look little different from the world? who, Who don't really do much for Christ? Well... Here again we see Isaiah, because he sees the holiness of God, he is sent and he gives his entire life to the service of the holy God. We need a church, we need churches, we need Christians who will sacrifice their lives for Christ. And so we need an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. Well, this is what we're going to think about in these first four verses. We're just going to think about God and his holiness as we see it in this scene. We can just look at this scene through a few things that are described very briefly. We see that one king dies, another king sits, the angels hide, the choir sings, and the posts shake. That's what we are going to think more about in the first four verses. So first, we see that the king dies. Isaiah starts this story, this report of his vision in verse 1 by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. King Uzziah dies. Now. We should pay attention to those first few words. Uh, it's not just some uh, background information, but Isaiah is trying to make some important theological statements here. We should pay attention, first of all, because Isaiah very rarely gives us a notice of the dates of what's happening in the book and what's happening in his visions. Uh, There are only three times in the whole book, 66 chapters, where he gives us notice of the date. One of them was in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. This whole ministry and book happens in the years of all these different kings and their reign. So why here? This is important. This is important that he tells us when this is happening. Another reason to... Uh, pay attention to this date, is the way that he says it. When in the Old Testament they give notices of dates, they talk about the year of the king's reign. And so Isaiah should have said, In the 52nd year of the reign of King Uzziah, I saw the Lord. That's the year that he died. And so that's the normal way of giving a date, the year, the 52nd year of King Uzziah's reign. But that's not what he says. He doesn't want us to focus on the fact that Uzziah reigned that year, but that Uzziah died that year. And that's not how you give the dates on your calendar, the year that someone died. And so Isaiah is not just telling us that it's 740 BC. That's not the point of those first words. Isaiah wants you to focus on the reality that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, you might know, was one of the great kings for a long time of Israel, uh, 52 years of, of reign. And by and large, for for much of his reign, Israel prospered. The kingdom of Judah prospered. It was like one of the golden ages for the kingdom of Judah. And you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 26. But after a lot of prosperity, the Bible tells us that when Uzziah became strong, he became proud. He became proud. And this was his downfall. Because of his pride, the the telltale event that describes his pride is that Uzziah decided that he wanted to go into the temple. He was not authorized to go into the temple and offer incense, but he went into the temple, tried to uh, uh, offer incense at the temple when it was not his role as the king. It was the role of the priest. And so... For the rest of his life, King Uzziah was struck with leprosy. He became unclean. He was unclean by trying to go into the temple. And so for the rest of his life, he had to basically be quarantined in a room by himself because of his uncleanness. And so Isaiah is bringing all of this to mind as he begins his own story. Uzziah dares to enter into the temple. He does not regard the holiness of God. And so he is struck with uncleanness. And it's his downfall. But Isaiah is brought into the temple. Isaiah, in his humility, instead of his pride, like Uzziah, says, I am unclean. And so because of his humility, his sins are atoned for. He has a regard for the holiness of God. And in his humility, his sins are forgiven. Another lesson that Isaiah is trying to hint at here with those words is to remind us that at this point, the kingdom of Judah is now on the decline Things are getting bad, and they're only going to get worse. Yes, the nation had this great prosperity, but guess what? King Uzziah is just a human king. He's a sinful man, and so he's not going to lead a nation to be prosperous forever. King Uzziah had his downfall with his pride, and then after Uzziah, things are going to continue to decline. Just a few years before King Uzziah dies. There's a man in Assyria. Named Tiglath-Pileser III. Who rises to power. Who has now conquered the nation of Syria. In the north. And who is on his way towards the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Uzziah isn't going to help you. King Uzziah dies. And so. As we start this new part of Isaiah, really, we go to chapter 7 with King Ahaz, who's good for nothing. King Ahaz, who quakes and trembles like a leaf before Tiglath-Pileser. Isaiah says, you need to realize who is on the throne. Human kings will not fix your problem, King Ahaz. Human kings will not rescue Judah. But in the year that King Uzziah dies, you can see the Lord sitting upon the throne. And so even in these first words, Isaiah has a lesson for us. As the psalm says, put no confidence in princes, nor for trust on man depend. Every human king will die every president will die so don't put all your confidence in him don't put all your confidence in an election that is coming up in 2024 because whoever gets voted in is gonna die and they won't solve the nation's problems whether there's temporary prosperity or not it doesn't matter he's gonna die but there is one king who sits on the throne wouldn't you rather spend your life serving a king who never dies wouldn't you rather spend all your efforts and energy and emotional angst over a kingdom that will not be shaken rather than putting confidence in princes and presidents who will just die So the king dies, but another king sits on the throne, the great king, the king of kings. And so Isaiah describes him next. He describes what he sees. The king sits. He says, I saw the Lord, in verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah sees the Lord. The title he gives here is the title that means master or Lord, not the name of God that he will use in verse 3, but he sees the king. He sees the king seated upon the throne. Now, how does Isaiah see God? God says, Exodus 33, verse 20, No man can see me and live. God says through Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man can see nor will see. You cannot see God. No one can see God. So what does Isaiah see? Well, this is what many people we call accommodation or condescension. That God has to in some way, make himself known to us in a way that we can understand, a way that we can know him, and we, it's it's the real him, but he's giving himself to us, revealing himself to us in a way that we and, and our senses, in this case Isaiah's senses of sight and sound, can actually take in. We can't see the essence of God. God is spirit, John 424 says. But God accommodates himself to us. And so he appears in a vision to Isaiah in this way. God doesn't actually have a a physical throne made out of a certain metal. He doesn't actually have a, a robe made out of a certain fabric. He is a spirit. But he's accommodating himself to us. Theologians like John Calvin, they call this baby talk. God talks to us the way you talk to a baby. You go outside after lunch today, and one of our little toddlers falls on the ground and starts crying. You're not going to get the whiteboard out, walk over, and start drawing the nervous system and explaining to the little toddler what neurotransmitters are and what this pain is and why they're feeling pain. You're going to talk to them in baby talk. You're going to crouch down and say, do you have an ouchie? And so the word ouchy compared to the extensive knowledge of the the neural system is just a hint of our sight and knowledge of God compared to what God actually is. But God has to come down to us like we're little babies. And so even this vision, verse 1, The great God. It's just us with our toddler-like understanding of what ouchies are compared to what the nervous system is. So God is appearing in this vision to reveal himself in this way. What do we see? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, telling us that God is king. He's sitting on this throne and it is high and lifted up most likely isaiah is in the temple or he's having a vision of of the the temple of jerusalem and so there's the holy of holies with the mercy seat and the cherubim there and that was considered to be like god's throne but this is a throne that is high and lifted up the way that kings will sit on a platform so we have sort of a platform here Uh, so the platform is here you'd you would have a, a throne at the top of the platform and the idea is to represent authority. To represent that this is the person seated in power. But here, picture in the temple, Isaiah looks up to the ceiling. And he sees that the throne is way up there in the ceiling. And he doesn't even see the, the top of the throne. All that he can see is the train of a robe. Now we're most familiar with a train uh, from probably wedding dresses. You know, some people get married and and the bride has this long train behind her dress that the bridesmaid carries along so she doesn't trip over the train. So maybe you can picture a bride standing up here and her train is so long that it goes down to that bottom step there. How small would you have to be so that if you look up, all you see is the edge of of the train. You have to be like a little ant. You'd be a little ant down there on the floor looking at the edge of the train. And so that's what Isaiah is seeing as he looks in the temple and he looks up at the ceiling. All he sees is that the train of his robe is filling the temple. This is how big God is in comparison to Isaiah as an ant. And so he is clearly saying that we are to be in awe in fear of this king. We are to recognize him as the king of kings who is ruling over all things. You think again about King Ahaz in the next chapter. King Ahaz, you have no reason to tremble. This is the one you should tremble before. Don't tremble before the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is an ant in comparison to the God on the throne. If we really saw and understood God in this way, then the fear of man would be gone. Our worrying about all people's opinions about us and people's approval of us would be nothing because we would see them as ants and we would see ourselves as little ants. But we get to serve the king. And so we can rejoice in the great privilege that we can know and serve the great king. And before we move on, we have to point out who is it that is seated on the throne? Well, the Gospel of John tells us that Isaiah sees the Son of God. At the end of John chapter 12, John is quoting Isaiah 6, the verses in verses 9 and 10 that we'll get to in a few weeks. But then John says, John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw him. And spoke of his glory. He saw his glory. And he spoke of him. Referring to Jesus. Referring to the Christ. Isaiah saw the son of God. And saw his glory. And so Isaiah speaks. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's the son of God. Isaiah We'll later in uh, chapter 52, verse 13, talk about the suffering servants, the one who will come to be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But Isaiah starts that song in Isaiah 52:13, saying, "Behold, my servant will be high and lifted up. Only two people are called high and lifted up in Isaiah, the Lord and the suffering servants. Because they're the same person, or their same God. The Father and the Son and the spirit together are high and lifted up, fully God, a fully God to be worshipped and glorified. Isaiah sees the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. So the king sits. Next, we see the angels. The angels hide. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Important people have what we call a retinue. A retinue is a group of people that follow that important person around. If you've ever been somewhere where the president shows up, he shows up with a big motorcade and with a lot of Secret Service bodyguards. If you've uh, seen with famous people, they are usually constantly surrounded by paparazzi, or uh, others might be surrounded by journalists who are trying to get an interview with a person. Uh, This sometimes even happens with Some preachers, I heard once uh, a friend of mine uh, was at a conference where Paul Washer was speaking and he said he had to stand in line for one hour to shake Paul Washer's hand because there is a whole line of people wanting to talk to Paul Washer. And so the fact that there are often a lot of people surrounding someone is some indication that people think that person is important. It doesn't draw attention away from that person. Oh, you focus on the whole retinue around the person. You focus on the motorcade. No, you focus on the fact that the president must be pretty important if he has this motorcade. And so it is with the seraphim. The seraphim are the retinue. They are the attendants of the king. And our attention is not so that we can talk only about how great seraphim are but if we folk, if we think about how great the seraphim are that should lead us to then think even greatly more greatly about the king the king has these great beings and they are merely his servants the seraphim are glorious in john, uh, revelation chapter 19 the apostle john sees this angel, and he falls down before the angel and starts to worship him. And the angel says, no, you must not do that. Angels are so glorious that if you were to see one, you would probably be tempted to fall down and worship it. This is the retinue around God. So here we have seraphim. This is the only place in the Bible where this word seraphim is used. So, who are seraphim? What are they? Uh, well, I'll probably not give you an answer that satisfies you, because a lot of people try to do this whole angelology, taxonomy, genus and species of all these different angels, and, and how they're the same and how they're different. We have living creatures, you have angels, you have cherubim, and you have seraphim. Uh, it's, it's kind of my opinion that nobody really knows and we're not really gonna know on this earth. There are similarities and there are differences, and uh, we could spend a lot of time comparing and contrasting, but we don't know. Are the seraphim cherubim? Are the seraphim the living creatures? Are the seraphim their own kind of angel? I can't say for sure. They are some sort of angel, they do sound similar to what John says in Revelation 4:8 that the four living creatures are around the throne crying out holy 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 that sounds similar doesn't it but they're called four living creatures and they have four heads that's not what we see here we also have in Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 the throne of the ancient of days and it says 1000 thousands serve him. I think it's more likely that that's what the seraphim are. They are these thousand thousands of angels around the throne whose job is to serve the ancient of days, God himself. But Isaiah is not trying to write an entry of the encyclopedia of angels so that you can know all the different kinds of angels that are out there for your intellectual curiosity. That's not his point. Isaiah is just wanting to give you a vision of what he sees. He sees seraphim, and these seraphim are glorious. The word seraph means to burn, and that's why he calls them seraphim. They are the burning ones. They are on fire, he sees them on fire. They are constantly burning. They're burning because they're in the presence of the glory of God. If you take, like, a stick or a, a piece of wood and you put it into a fire that's already burning, you put that stick in, it's going to catch on fire. And then you often see when you have them together, that together it makes a bigger flame. And that's something like the image that that I have of, of when the seraphim are so close to the throne of God that they cannot help but catch on fire. But they're burning, without being consumed, they're burning in this glory forever and ever and ever. The glory of God is constantly lighting them up on fire uh, so to speak they are constantly in the presence of the glory of God they are above him verse 2 says they are above him on the throne and so they are there serving him that's their job is to serve him and then they have these wings each one has six wings Uh, so it says that they cover their face with two of them Covering their face, likely because they cannot bear the sight of looking directly upon the glory of God. They cannot bear the burning bliss, so they cover their face. With the other two, they fly around to do his will, to serve him. And with the other two, they cover their feet. They cover their feet seems that the reason they cover their feet is a symbol of their creatureliness. Representing that they are creatures. They are not gods. They were created by God. But they're also not sinful creatures. These are the, the good angels. The ones that had not sinned. And so they are allowed to be in the presence of God. Because they're not sinful. But... They are creatures. And so they cover their feet. Their creatureliness cannot come into this even more close direct contact with the glory of God. God is so holy, so above creation, that even sinless creation must cover itself and bow before him. This is what the seraphim do. But next, we see the choir sings. The choir in verse 3, the choir of seraphim, it says, One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They sing. To one another. Some people think that there are two of them here calling to one another because of those two cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. Again, I think it's more likely that this is a whole choir of thousands of thousands, and they are calling to one another. Uh, Literally, each one says to that one. So maybe you can picture them on, on two sides of the throne, and this side calling out to the other side. It could be that they are doing what we call antiphony. Antiphony is when one group sings the part, and then the other group sings a part. When we sing, it is well, uh, we often, in the chorus, we, the, the men will say, it is well, and then the women will sing, it is well. That's called antiphony. So it could be that they're taking turns. One side of the throne crying holy, holy, holy. The other side responding holy, holy, holy. It could be that they're singing it all together at the same time. The whole choir crying out holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Calling upon him as Yahweh by his name. The Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of the armies. That's what the host means. They are the angel armies who are doing his work, doing his bidding, fighting on behalf of the church to protect his people and to do his will. And so they are calling out endlessly in praise to God. We can just pause at this point and talk about ourselves and how this applies to us. We too are called to live in ceaseless praise to the holy God. Your life is meant to praise God forever and ever. And even we are called to display our praise by coming together and singing together in constant praise of God. The repetition here. We'll see later it's for emphasis, but it's also here for repetition. I think Isaiah is trying to also get across this idea that this is a constant praise. The seraphim don't get tired of the word holy. And so they can say it over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. Maybe you've seen some great sights in your life. And when you first get there, you can't help but respond, wow, amazing. And it comes out of your mouth. But what if you see the sight of God? The first thing you're gonna say is, wow, amazing. But what if you do nothing? But always say those words, wow. And every time you were to look upon the Lord on the throne, your response would always be, wow. As if you are seeing it for the first time. You are being impressed with this for the first time. This is what's happening with the seraphim. Every moment that they are burning up in the glory of God, they are also being impressed with His holiness so that they cannot help but respond as if it's the first time. Holy. He is holy. And so they keep saying it over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. Maybe you have a favorite song. You ever had the experience of finding a song that you listen to over and over again because you love to hear the song? Maybe you've had another experience where you, you thought you had a favorite song. But after 300 times, you say, okay, I'm tired of that song now. It's no longer my favorite. Is this your favorite song? Would you ever get tired of singing this song? The seraphim never get tired of singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is we, we do get tired of singing holy, holy, holy. We are fallen people, sinful people. We love singing praises to God, but the reality is we can go From one minute of praise to God to to the next minute looking over at our phones and a a new cat video is posted. And your mind starts thinking about cat videos. All uh, 30 seconds after singing about the holy God. We all know that, that we can have a wonderful worship service where we sense that God is present with us but then in an hour we're we're going to get grumpy we can get frustrated about something you're going to feel tired your mind is going to wander you're not always thinking about the holiness of god you're not always in awe and living in ceaseless praise but god is worthy of this god is worthy of our constant unending praise and awe we can also think about what verse 3 tells us about singing. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 16, sing to one another. He says, we are to teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, I I have a question for Paul. I want to ask him one day, when he said those words one another, was he thinking about the seraphim? Are we supposed to be like the seraphim as they call out to one another? Is that why he says we ought to sing to one another? But that's what Paul tells us to do. That's what the seraphim are doing. You can sort of imagine that that not only is the holiness of God encouraging them to constantly sing, but also as they call out to one another. It's like the the staring game who's going to blink first? Which seraphim is going to be the first one to stop singing holy, holy, holy? And so this side sings, and they're like, oh, not going to be me. Nope, he's still singing. i got to keep singing. And so constantly, they're spurring each other on to sing. And this is part of what the church is for. Singing is not about you and God only. It's not about your personal praises to Christ. But Paul says, sing to one God another because as we do it together we are spurring each other on even more to sing praises to God and so I encourage you to have this on your minds as you sing that you're singing to the other side of the room you're singing to one another and you can even do this not just in your head but you can do it physically don't just Always, if you, if you know the tune, if you know the words, you don't always have to bury your head in a hymnal, but you can actually look and turn your, your voice to, to sing to the other people in the room. Because we are called to sing to one another. This is what the seraphim did. So what are they singing? Well, of course, they are calling upon God as holy Holy, holy. To be holy, as many of you know, means to be set apart. And God is holy because he is the creator. He is God. He is the only God. He is so distinct, unique, different from everything else in the entire universe. Because he's the one who created all things. They were created for him so God is distinct. He is holy as the creator God. He's the greatest thing you could ever think of or imagine the greatest thing you could ever know. But the holiness of God is also talking about his perfection and his moral purity. It's a moral statement. God is completely pure in everything that he does and everything that he is. God doesn't just do holy things. God is holy. God is morally pure and perfect. And so when it comes to everything that he does, as he interacts with the world, everything he does is holy. He has a holy love, a holy justice, a holy mercy. Everything about him is holy. And so... Because he is perfectly holy, he hates sin. He must hate sin. It's like taking the, the two magnets and the opposite magnets attract, but the, the ones that are the same, they repel each other. And you try to stick those two magnets together and you can't do it. It doesn't work. The holiness of God repels every hint of of impurity and sin. It is not possible for sin to come into contact with the holy God. God is not just described as holy, but he's described as three times holy. And this is here for emphasis. It's the Hebrew way of putting exclamation marks and underlining and putting it in bold and piling up adjectives. We might call somebody a dirty, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Well, those three words all mean the same thing. He's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. But you pile them up together and, yeah, that's a pretty bad person, huh? He's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Well, this is how, in Hebrew, they do adjectives. They emphasize, they intensify by saying that someone is... Holy, holy, holy. But only God, God is, uh, only holiness is described this way about God. R.C. Sproul, you know the line, the Bible doesn't say God is love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. No, God is holy, holy, holy. It's who he is. If you want to define God, you could just use the word holy. I don't even think it's helpful to call it an attribute of God. It's, it's not a part of God the way that green eyes are a part of a person. No, it is who he is. It's, it's His being, his essence is holy. This is the God of the Bible, of reality. This is the God that you need to know and you need to worship. The one who in his being is three times holy. Well then verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. One guy, a man named Alec Mateer, he says, holiness is God's hidden glory. Glory is is God's all-present holiness. Now, I read that and it took me about five minutes to understand as I was thinking about it. So I'll read it again, but you're going to have to go home and think about it. Maybe write it down. Holiness is God's hidden glory. Glory is God's all-present holiness. So God is holy. Holy but to creation, he shows his glory. His glory is the display of his holiness. And sometimes that's like in a a physical light that people see his glory. But it means that we, we worship him, we recognize his holiness, recognizing him as God, when we look at everything that glorifies him. So the world, all the earth, creation, and even every human being, who truly knows him, though they suppress the truth, every human being reflects his glory in some way. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so the last part of the story here is then that the posts shake. The posts shake. The effect of the holiness of God becoming present to Isaiah even in this baby talk kind of way. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The voice is the voice of the seraphim. They're the ones who are calling. This huge choir or the The volume of the the choir, however many they are, makes the doorposts of the temple shake. He feels, Isaiah feels the ground, the temple shaking. And the house is filled with smoke. The smoke is a description of the presence of God. Uh, You see that in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle. The smoke reveals God. You know God is there because the smoke is there, but the smoke also hides God. It hides Isaiah from seeing even more. Isaiah himself cannot behold that glory of God. So the house is filled with smoke, in some ways as a mercy to him that he would not have to see the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're overwhelmed with sights and sounds. You ever been somewhere where it was so loud and then the, the lights, maybe are strobe lights, the lights are always flashing at you and maybe there are smells around you and maybe you feel the ground shaking like at a concert when the, the booming of the concert is literally making your, your body shake and the ground shake you're in places like that where, you say, I can't be here anymore. I got to get out of here. I'm getting this terrible headache, or I- I'm I'm getting sick. Well, this is what happens to Isaiah. He has the sights of the throne and the burning seraphim. He's got the sounds of the loud choir. He's got the feeling of the earth shaking. He's got the smell of the smoke and he can't take it. Woe is me. I am undone. This is what it's like to be in the presence of just a small bit of the holiness of God. So Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll look at his response the atonement, and then how he is sent. But here is what we need to think about as we come to the end. How will you respond to the word of God showing you the holiness of God? Are you going to leave this room the same person that you were before 11 o'clock? How can you leave unchanged this is the the one the god that you were made to know and to praise isn't there something about this passage whoever you are here that draws you to this god you are in awe of this god you spend your whole week you've spent all of last week thinking about all these other things and you have all these desires all these wants you You want so many things for your life. But you realize how empty all of it is. But then you read these words and you say, yes, that's what I need. This is the thing that satisfies. This is what fills me. This is what I want more and more of. And so the holiness of God is what makes you come undone. It's overwhelming, and yet mysteriously you say, I can't get enough. We could spend all day just talking about these words, and we would never be able to get enough, and the seraphim never get enough of calling out this song, because it's what we were made for. You were made to glorify and enjoy God You will never find satisfaction and joy in anything else but to know this God. Come to Him. Know Him. Call upon Him to reveal Himself to you. He calls you to come to Him and has made a way through Jesus Christ, the the atoning sacrifice we'll think about next week. It is Christ who gets... Forgive you of your sins so that you, a sinner, might come into the presence of a holy God. But you must call upon him. Draw near to him. Tell him that you want to truly know him. And for us who are Christians, seeing, reading these verses should make us want to be more and more holy. Be holy, God says, as I am holy. Jerry Bridges says this is our greatest need as a church. I think we can all agree. We need to understand the holiness of God because that will help us and that will impel us to be more holy. Jonathan Edwards says, What pleasure would it be to a soul that hates holiness to see the holiness of God? In other words, if you want to prepare for heaven and seeing the holiness of God, then You better not hate holiness, but love it and seek after it. Desire more holiness in your life. Be holy as God is holy. We're going to pray and then we will sing holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. God, we pray that your name might be hallowed, may be regarded as holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. May all mankind, whom you have created for your glory, may they bow their knees before you and call upon you as their holy God. May your church, O Lord, Know more and more. Become more aware of your holiness. We pray that you would help us to then be holy as you are holy. We pray that by your grace, Lord, you would bring us to that day when we also can surround your throne crying out, holy, holy, holy to the Lord.